Now, if you were with us last time we were in, we kind of looked at an interesting moment here as we go into uh, chapter 21. We'll start by looking at this unresolved murder kind of situation that has to be dealt with in the nation of Israel going into the promised land. We'll find a various of laws that will be covered here in chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, even into 25. There's, there's various laws that God set up in place to bring and keep order within the nation of Israel as they continue to travel into that promise, especially when they get into the promised land. And uh, as we take a look here in Deuteronomy 21, verse 1, it says, If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, pause right there, there's, there's a question mark there. You're walking down through the land, you see a dead body laying there. What do you do with the dead body? Do you just keep walking by? No, you cannot do that because of God's law says you cannot. And so if they found a slain, someone who'd been killed, presumably that was maybe even died as a natural causes, um, they had to be ruled out if it was or was not, and how that, that may have, could have turned out to be a murder instead, but it was not known by the person who found the body. Now, it was important based on the principle that we saw and studied in Numbers chapter 20, 35, I should say, verses 33 and 34. That passage tells us that the people understood if there was blood of unresolved, unavenged murder defiles or pollutes the land. So if there was a murder, they didn't know what happened, a natural cause, but they didn't know that. It defiles the land, God says, and when that pollutes the land, that has to be dealt with only by a sacrifice. And so, therefore, if there is a murder unavenged, some kind of cleansing is necessary for that land, so it will not be defiled. God then gives us in verse 2 through 6 the procedure for atoning the land in this situation, look what happens. Then your elders or your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. So if you found it, you immediately are to tell someone. In this case, you were to go tell the elders and your judges. And they went out there and then they could see them pacing out. You know, what's the distance between this city of our city or someone else's city? Because they didn't want it to fall on their city because then they have responsibility. Can you imagine them pacing that out going, well, use your feet. It's their bigger feet. Now use this feet. However they were going to measure it, they wanted to make sure it didn't land on their city. Watch what happens when, if it does. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke, the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled." And all the elders of that city nearest the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. 
So when you look at this, you can see the procedure, what needed to take place first. First, the matter of jurisdiction. Whose jurisdiction is supposed to deal with this matter, that of potential murder? And had to be settled by pacing it out based on the elders and the judges making that determination. Then these elders would be responsible to make the sacrifice of the atonement for the cleansing in the murder-polluted land. That was based on the elders whose city it fell closest to. And then the sons of Levi, who were the ones ministering to God and doing this and overseeing this, would be stepped in at that point in time. And this washing of the hands of done in the presence of the sons of Levi, who by their word, by their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. It was a powerful proclamation because when you take a look at that, that the elders' responsibility, it says when they put their hands over and washing their hands over the sacrifice of that heifer, they're basically saying, as elders and judges of this city that we're held responsible, we have done everything possible to determine if this was a natural cause or murder, and we have not been able to figure this out. It's an unsolved moment here of unsolved murder let's say and it says we have done everything we do to settle this case and we cannot and we are cleaning from all guilt of any matter that this is rest upon us and our our city and the land is cleansed now imagine you think about that a little bit and you go that's an interesting little ceremony washing of the hands over the sacrificed animal meant nothing if the elders had, in fact, not done their job and went out and tried to figure out how they could solve what happened to this man or this woman. If they didn't even take the time, they say, okay, can you figure this out? Who knows this guy? I don't know who this guy is. Okay, let's go over there and wash our hands and we'll just wash our <clears throat> anything of, of responsibility from this. Let's go do this. Are you ready? Yep, okay, let's go. Well, it's interesting when you think about that and they come and they cannot figure out who to avenge the murder apart from what's going on. All they can do is wash their hands and it was just as about as empty of a gesture if you think about that. That gesture of them, the elders coming and washing their hands over the, elf, uh, uh, the heifer was just as empty as Pilate when he came out, and what did he do when they were taking Jesus to the trial? And they were saying, kill him and kill him, right? He took his hands and he washed his hands in front of them to say, I am not guilty of this man's death. Interesting. But that didn't mean anything because he was just doing that ceremonially because he didn't want to take responsibility. And these elders would be the same way. If they did not seriously take a look at this and try to resolve it, they were just trying to pacify it. That, that guilt still falls upon them. And God sees all these things. It's not like they, he doesn't see what, they're, what they've done or not done. And uh, so they would be judged appropriately. But then when we look here, the, when you take a look at these elders, it says in verse 7 through 9, it says, Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf of the blood, so you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of God. So again, in back in Numbers 35, verses 35, 
33 and 34, it makes this principle very clear that unavenged murders defile and pollute the land and there must be an atonement that is properly dealt with and overseed by the, the, the elders of that city and the, Levite, the Levites, the priests overseeing it and making sure that they are doing what they're supposed to do in the, according to the law of God. And it says there, provide an atonement, O Lord, for your people. We don't want to be held guilty or held responsible for the pollution of the land. So when Israel followed God's instructions for atonement, he honored his word and by taking away their guilt because they did exactly what God asked them to do in regards to the situation. But the removal of guilt was always based on blood sacrifice. There is no other way for guilt to be released from a person but by sacrifice. Our substitutionary atonement has to take place, and the heifer was theirs. For us, it's Jesus Christ. He's our substitutionary atonement that we put our lives into, and it's his blood that takes away the guilt. We see here in verse 10 through 14 of chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, it says, laws regarding taking a wife from a conquered people. So there had to be some boundaries when they went to war and they were taking over the promised land and they started conquering. There were some temptations. There were some issues about when they conquered, they could take the women and stuff. There had to be some boundaries God sets up here. He says, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity and remain in your house and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then, she, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money, and you shall not treat her brutally, because you have humbled her. So there's very strict guidelines here of a incorporating now a foreign woman who had probably... Pagan rituals, pagan gods, pagan way of living, very uh, contrary to uh, the, the, the Israelites and how they serve the one true God. They serve multiple gods. There was a lot of issues there. And for them to take her as a wife, the very first thing she had to do is that she had to, as a captive woman, had to be purified and humbled. That was the shaving of the head. That was a cleansing. That was a cleaning. That was getting rid of the old clothes. Now putting on new clothes. A transformation must take place so that she takes a break from the past and she no longer lives in the past or brings the past or the baggage of her old ways and even her clothes into a new relationship, into a new start. That's the representation here. And the willingness to start anew humbly as a child, right? Humbling in that process. 
She also, not only did she have to do that, but that the captive woman had to show a change of allegiance because the way they dressed was an allegiance or an identifier of the culture you were in. So by getting the old clothes off, this captive woman no longer regarded her former nation or her former family. Now she was a citizen of Israel. So she didn't get to bring her, her nation and, and look and act and talk and everything as her old nation now being in the nation of Israel and married to an Israelite. That cannot happen. And there would be problems when that does happen. And then we see the fact that she had to have a whole month where she could mourn past all the associations that she was part of in her family unit and community and everything else. Um, and this would, could resolve issues in her heart regarding family when her husband-to-be could live with her a month without any intimate relations. Could they get along during this period of time? Is she willing to do this? I mean, there was a testing time for that month um, as she mourned her past and now taking on a new identity and new uh, culture and everything else, and uh, now a husband. And so when we take a look at this, we can see that to make sure he was not making a hasty decision just based on the, her beauty. <laughs> so, so the young man who's conquered and says, oh, that's the most beautiful one. I want her. <laughs> God's wise. He's like, you're, you're driven by your flesh, man. So you can make some really bad decisions when you go by your flesh. Why don't we take a time and let's see how she's going to incorporate, how she wants to adjust and you, and let's see before you consummate this marriage. And, uh, and that's why that month there was important uh, for both. But you will, not, you will certainly, if for some reason you identify that she is not someone you can live with, you don't want her to be married to her as this captive woman, uh, they says here, you certainly are not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her brutally. You're not to mistreat her or sell her like she's of no value. No, no, you can't do that. You need to make sure it's done properly and set her free with dignity uh, to protect the rights of this captive woman. So uh, again, God was being very uh, important to keep these men uh, in boundaries and don't think they can freely do whatever they want to do with these captive women. Verse 15 and 17, we talk about the, the inheritance rights, the protection around that. It says, if a man has two wives, right up front, you're, you know this is going to be a, an interesting conversation. A man who has two wives, uh, one loved and the other unloved. Now you're getting it even more complicated. This is, this is going to be interesting, right? And they have borne him children, both the loved one and the unloved one. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day of her bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and the right of the firstborn is his. So God knew, that, you know, that you get this situation, you have two wives, they both have children, and the one you don't love, but you had children with her, that firstborn has the firstborn rights. 
But you can see the one he loves, the wife he loves, and the one he loves. Wait, 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 wait. Give it to our sons. You love me more than her. You can hear that interesting conversation taking place in the bedroom, right? So God said, no, no. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the man or you as a, the loved wife says. God says, law says, inheritance is, is dealt with this way, and you don't have a choice. This is how it's supposed to work. So obviously there's going to be problems in the home, especially between the loved and unloved one. That's a problem. And then God commanded that the inherited rights to go to the unloved firstborn, which is still going to cause some problems. But the right of the firstborn in the ancient Israel, the firstborn was always given twice as much. So if there were three sons, they would divide it in a way the first son, the firstborn gets double portion and the other two split the other one. So two and the other ones get one each. And that's how God set it up. Now, in verse 18 through 21, we're going to see what happens with regards to dealing with, oh, a rare moment. We call it a rebellious son in the family. I mean, that's a rare moment, but let's see what, how God deals with it. It says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, they've corrected him, right? They did exactly what God said they were supposed to, chastened him, will not heed them. That didn't change his, his mind or <laughs> in his life. He's still rebellious. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice he is a glutton and a drunkard then all of the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones so you shall put away the evil from among you and all of Israel shall hear and fear well this is a very strong punishment for a rebellious son um, you know first of all how is he getting all that food and, and drink that he's getting all these? So it must be an older son that's living there because he's the one that's feeding himself and he's certainly getting a hold of the, of the, of the, the drink and, and, and parting away here. But this is an extreme violation of the Fifth Amendment. Honor your father and your mother. We see that in 5.16. That is not supposed to... We take that... Many people today is like, oh, that's a rebellious son or a daughter coming against you and talking. And they're like, okay, you know, you know, every parent deals with this kind of issue. You know? and, and the kids are ruling the house. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It never was. It should never be. Well, they had strong because they said this is rebellious will have enough cancer effect. It will affect all the families in Israel. So God set it up. It shall bring about that this son will be stoned and it will bring absolute. It, everyone will hear about it and will bring fear to every son and daughter who wants to think about being rebellious and bring order here. Now, this doesn't mean that a small child or even a young teenager but we see that there is a son of, past, of an age of accountability. This child is at the age of accountability. Whenever that is, that is old enough to make a decisions and think rightly and understanding and who sets himself in a determined rebellious state against his father and mother. So it's not like the terrible twos we're talking about here. 
We're not talking about the preteen getting into puberty moment. But I believe, I always, always lean toward those once in puberty, full puberty, gone through puberty, is a young adult capable of a being, a, being fully adulthood on every aspect and every level. That is the age of accountability. And so I take it that if that, that level, this person, this child knows exactly, even through discipline and reasoning, they are still going to do what they want to do they god says this is how you're going to deal with them and that such stubborn and rebellious son was to be put on trial before the elders of the city and the elders determine if that going to be stoned or not and so again there's got to be a full story hearing all kinds of what this child has done and they come to a point where they will make that determination now again that will bring a clear fear, and understanding of what God's expectations are, and they are not going to tolerate uh, this sin in the society that would cause a problem with the nation of Israel as a whole. It's not going to happen. God said no. Then we see in verse 22 and 23 uh, the curse of the one who hangs on a tree. We see if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So when you take a look at the ancient Israel, there was something worse than being put to death. And that is when when you're put to death and then your corpse is left exposed to the society, the community around you in shame and in humiliation. And then the dogs, the animals, the birds come and start ravaging off on the body. And the people in the family unit is just, this is what my relative or family member, someone has done and it's shameful and it brings about um, an understanding to the community that this uh, is this life that that led to this could not is not good now his body shall not remain so there's still mercy and there's still boundaries that God puts on here and he says you shall not remain overnight on the tree but surely be buried buried him that day so if anyone was executed and deemed worthy of such disgrace by hanging him on a tree the humiliation to his memory and his family must not be over extensive that's why God says okay just the day take them down bury them and let it be and let's move on it's showing mercy to the family but uh but he who was hanged is accursed of God, and the punishment of being hanged on the tree and left to open exposure was very severe, but it was certainly uh, life-changing for all everyone around to see the consequences for going against God. Now, Paul kind of expounds on this concept here in Deuteronomy 21.31 in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Jesus not only died in our place, but he also took the place of the accursed of God. He hung on the tree for us. He, did the, he took on the accursed of God. And open shame and degradation and humiliation and, and stripped. People spat on him and mocked him and everything as he hung on the tree for you and for me. He received this curse, which we deserved, and he did not. So that we could receive what? He says here in Galatians, Paul says, receive the blessing of Abraham, which he deserved and we did not. So that we are redeemed from the curse of the law by the work of Jesus and the cross for us. What a celebration, what a joy, what what amazing grace and mercy. We no longer have to fear that God wants to curse us. There's so many people I meet when they're so young in the faith or they've been dealt with legalism and all kinds of stuff in their lives and they think every day they're constantly crying out and praying, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me of things they, they did years ago or in the past. They don't understand they're not cursed. They have been forgiven by the finished work of Jesus Christ who hung on the tree for you. You're set free. But so many think you're still cursed. You still think there's, there's going to be a, 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 just a hammer coming down upon you. No, he, he wants to bless us. Not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf on that tree. I hope you understand that. The grace of God. Now in verse 22, chapter 22, we're going to see the laws to demonstrate just so beautifully the kindness and the purity in regards to certain things here. He says right here in verses 1 through 4, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, Then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so shall you do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. So we see that God sets a, a, you know, an expectations as as the nation of Israel, as a, as a, a child of God here. That you're, you're representing God and, and how, do you, how kind you are is to see how it is when you react to your brother in need. It says right here, you shall not see and hide yourself. God here condemned the sin of doing nothing. 
When you know you should be doing something and you don't do it, do you realize that is sin? Woo! <laughs> Think about that a few times. When God said you should have done something and you did not do it, look at how that is being condemned here of not of the, the sin of doing nothing. To, to see your brother in need and to do nothing when God is showing you you can help is to do evil. When one has the opportunity to do good and you must not hide yourself from it. You don't turn your back and see someone in need and go, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Turn around, turn around. Don't, don't, don't acknowledge it and then we won't be held responsible for this. That's not how you're supposed to do it. When something is lost, God says here, a finder cannot claim it for themselves without taking all due diligence to restore it to the owner. And it doesn't matter if it's, a, there's no time frame here. Well, after a week, okay, it's mine. Finders, keepers, lose your peepers. No, no, no. You get it. You have to hold on to it. And it could be some period of time when all of a sudden someone shows up. Did you see my donkey anywhere? Oh, what did he look like? <laughs> you know, he had a little spot, you know. We're on that year, you know. No, oh, mine's down here. No, no, it's up there. No, you're supposed to restore it to the brother who is now looking to find his donkey. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 commands Israel to also help stray animals, but extends the obligation to stray animals of an enemy as well, not just a brother. Oh, I'll do that for my brother brother in Christ of course I'm going to do that but not my enemy that's his problem he should take care of his own things no God says no no your neighbor doesn't mean it's just a brother in Christ it could be also an enemy and you shall surely help him left them up again so he says if, if someone's donkey has fallen down and you're able to be there to help and pick up now if it's not a donkey fill in the blank my brothers it can be something else it's not just a donkey I, well I've never seen anyone with a donkey how can I help someone with a donkey no don't go down that path you know it could be the car because that donkey's his ride and that person has a car and a flat tire and you know you can stop to help that person whatever it may be the Lord's putting on your heart to do Verse 5, we see the distinction between the sexes in clothing and the distinction between man and woman. It says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. <laughs> this is an interesting little uh, verse for, for some. Now let me see if I go through it slowly and see if I cannot upset too many people here. In the Old Testament times, men and women wore clothing that was very similar. They both wore robes, if you remember. They both had garments that went down to their, their ankles. Remember we talked on Sunday, they had to gird up the loins, tuck it in the sash, and so that the men could have action to fight and to work. It's like turning them into shorts. Remember that conversation? If you're following us along in, in, uh, on Sundays. So these long robes and wrapping garments were very common for both sexes. Yet the specific types of garments and the way in which they were worn made it clear between if it was a male or a female. 
And those distinctions between the sexes, these command instructions by God's people to respect those distinctions. Now when you study the language here, you are seeing here of, of a leaning to those who have a sin problem of homosexuality. Who are leaning to war to be more feminine or to be more masculine. And God says you cannot do that. It's interesting because some have taken this command to be the proof text for women wearing pants. And they can never wear pants because they says right here in the law that women wearing pants and some, again, some Christian groups command that women wear only dresses. And they use this as a text proof. Yet it is not a command against women wearing a garment that in some ways might be common between men and women. It is a command against dressing in a manner that deliberately blurs the line between the sexes. That you want to look like a man. That you want to look like a woman. It's a deliberate action. You're looking to portray your opposite sex for you. That is what God is commanding. That is what he's referring to here, not the fact that, okay, those pair of jeans you can never wear. Now, don't get me wrong. Men, don't wear skinny jeans. I really, you know, it's, it's, again, it's not the law. <laughs> and I'm not saying because you wear skinny jeans that you want to be a female. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying <laughs> if there's a boundary, you'll hear people say, oh, they wear skinny jeans. They're breaking this command and that guy should never. Oh, she just wore jeans in the middle of doing some really hard work that a dress would never have worked well for her to do that hard work. And she's wearing jeans. She broke the law. Again, we're under grace. It's the, it's the hard issue. Why are they looking to, wanting to look like a woman as a man? Why does that woman want to look like a man? I mean, that is what God is trying to keep the boundaries. This doesn't prohibit a man from wearing a kilt. Yet it clearly prohibits a man dressing like a woman. It's, it's just, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. It's not right. But they, people today with modern culture, they think anything goes. But this drastic rise, as you see in our culture today, and it is paraded around, there's tremendous pride after it. They are, look, you can look at all on the news cycles of, of promoting from our youngest children in school systems all the way up of this cross-dressing, transvestitism, behavior, gender bendering, behavior, the culture. And it's absolutely shocking because it is promoted in the culture today. And God said, this should not be. It should not be. But it is. And if it wasn't dealt with, it would turn into what we're seeing today. Anything goes. It's scary. Verses 6 and 7, we see now, again, showing kindness to the animals here. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs... 
with the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourselves, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. So God here is simply and plainly commanding a kindness to animals, not to be cruel to animals, even as a bird's nest, as he gives an example here, uh, takes in special consideration what's going on here um, to make sure that God, the, the Israel obeys this, even this most simplest of commands when it comes to birds, because obedience to the smallest of God's commandments brings blessing to you. Even the smallest commandments, don't mess with the, the bird there, with the nest and eggs. Don't, if you're going to take the eggs and you take the little birdies, don't kill the mother. Don't do, there's kindness. But if you're not able to just be obedient to the small commandments of God, where he wants to bless you, it puts us into a, this proper submission to him when we obey the small commandments. These small things that God reveals to us that we need to follow his his word. The second is because kindness and gentleness is a small thing often, but not always, speaks to our ability to be kind and gentle in weightier matters. When you can do it in the smaller matters, then you'll be able to do it in the bigger and heavier and weightier matters. It's no longer dealing with just little birds, but how are you treating a person? That shows your heart. If you're so cruel and mean to a small bird for no purpose and reason except your that's revealing of your heart then you'll do that in heavier matters as well and we must be very careful so if someone is cruel to animals not only is that sin in itself god says but they are also much more likely to be cruel to people and that cruelty will flourish within the nation of israel and god said that ain't going to happen no, that's not going to happen. Now look at here in verse 8. We see what happens regards to when you build a new house, then you shall make a uh, parapet for your roof that you may not build guilt, bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. So this, is, this has to dealing with like house inspectors. It's, it's a verse on this issue here. He had, any house inspector or building a house, they should be looking at this. Why? Because it's all dealing with liability. Liability and building codes are right here in this one verse. If you're going to be building a parapet of your roof, God commanded that the railing be made for the rooftop has to be a parapet around the rooftop so anyone was coming up there for the evening sit to bring the coolness of the air and sitting on top, they didn't fall off. So they didn't fall off the roof. And so there'd be bloodshed and you would be held responsible. So the failure to build in a safe way would bring guilt or liability on the owner or the builder of the home. And that is why we have house inspectors these days, you know. Now, verse 9 through 12, four laws of separation. We see here, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the, the, lest, 
the yield of the seed which you have shown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together, and you shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. That's not very fashionable. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. So we see four laws of separations, things you are not to do. We see the first one was what? We are not to mix different kinds of seed. That's what they were not to do. Each of these laws was meant to separate Israel from their pagan world. There's, there's reasons why God does this, and it's very specific to separate. That's all about his people, to separate yourself from the Gentiles or separate God says we should do or do not do things a certain action so that we are not identified with the world we are identified as children of God it's a thing you need to keep in the back of your mind here and so when you have these pagan neighbors and who calmly combined unlike things to achieve what they thought was a magical combination God says no no we're going to show you how this works we do not do pagan cultures we're not going to do it the way they do where they're different seeds in a vineyard or to plow with an ox and a donkey they're not equally yoked they're not to be done do it that way you're not to to take wool and linen and mix it together these garments it represented that culture God says you can't do those kinds of things you're not going to be like these occultic customs of our neighbors we have to separate and be distinct so there's no question in people's minds where you stand you follow the true living God or you don't Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? So we see it in the New Testament. You, you, you can't be walking around in darkness like the rest of the world. You're not, you're not to be fellowshipping in this lawlessness of, of situations. You need to stand for God and righteousness in how you live your life. Now regarding the tassels on the four corners of the clothing, this command was also a distinction for Israel from their pagan neighbors. Why? In this way, an Israelite man was immediately known by the clothes he wore. You, that's how they distinguish many times of that culture and very specific for an Israelite. We saw it in Numbers 15, verses 37 through 41, a symbolic meaning to give these tassels they were to sewn at the edge of their clothes. It was namely to remind to Israel to keep God's law. That's what those tassels were for, is to remind you that you keep God's law. Everyone who watched you walking down the street saw the tassel. That's an Israelite. He keeps God's law. Everyone knew that. Now it's interesting, like most common commands that God gives, man can screw them up. <laughs> they can take it way to the extremes, can they not? Why? Because we know that they, the twist and the, uh, and the corruption that it came in Jesus' day, he had to condemn the Pharisees, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, saying they enlarged their borders of their garments. <laughs> they made their tassels really big in their garments. Why? Because they wanted to look more spiritual. They wanted to look more elitist. That, 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 that spiritual pride because they wanted to be known. And Jesus called them all out on that because they enlarged their tassels and prominent to show their spirituality to everyone. 
God calls, calls you out on those things. And he, Jesus certainly did with these Pharisees. Now, regarding laws of sexual morality, we see this in verses 13 through 21, regards to accusations of marital deceptions and adultery kinds of issues here. Look what happens. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found, her was not, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city of, at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him and they shall fine him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. Oh, that poor woman. I wish we read that and like, oh, that poor woman. He just did that to her and she's still going to be the wife? Uh, so what happens is he's going to be a wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true and evidence of virginities are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So the idea here is that the man accused his wife of not being a virgin. And in that days when that happens, when they were to, to commence or fulfill that, that marriage and they come together as one, they lay a sheet or a tapestry so that when she, uh, he penetrates, then there's uh, some dri drippings of blood onto the, the, that is then the right of the parents of the young woman to be able to prove. And that is then ceremonially given to them for them to show and celebrate the fact that she was a virgin when she got married. Now, if he turned around and says, I, I don't like you, I, I don't care, I, I don't like you, I, I, I'm going to tell everyone you were not a virgin, and now it comes a day or two days later, whatever it may be, and they, he starts making an accusation, a false accusation, now the parents can come back, wait, 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 we got, we got the evidence. And when that happened, he had to pay 100 shekels, and she became his wife for the rest of his life, or her life. Ooh, that might have been tough to live in that household with that woman. Do you not think? Maybe it would be better for him to go to the top of the roof and be in the far because the woman would not be a happy woman in that house, I assure you. But it's important to understand that ancient Israel virginity was highly valued. It was seen as a great loss to give one's virginity before marriage. And if a woman was known to have lost her virginity, it was so detriment that she actually lost her life with that. Now that's one way of making sure celibacy stays pure in the society. <laughs> and that's what it was designed for back in those days. But the same principle, if a husband believed that his wife had lied about her virginity, that was a way that it was going to be, that is... Again, 
a law that was not going to people get around. It was viewed, it was brought in front of the leaders of that community to make a judgment. Those were difficult decisions. So when it comes in front of the elders and the judges of that, the, at the city gates and they're making these hard decisions, sometimes they had to go up, as we learned earlier, they go up to the higher tribunal of highest chief judge and, and, uh, and uh, priest to make a determinations of that because it is one's, one's life. But the father of that young and mother of that young lady was able to help come and for her defense if she was a virgin and had the evidence to be able to do that. Now it's interesting here, in verse 22, the penalty we see if a man is found lying with a woman married to, her, to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, you shall put away the evil from Israel. Not only do they see, God sees that there's, there's evilness when you're not a virgin when you get married, but it's also when you're married and you sleep around with someone else, that is evil in the eyes of God. It's not something that's, oh, it's culturally acceptable. Today it is. It's, it's not that it's, it's, this is, that was the old-fashioned way. And this, there's a reason because of the impact it has on a family and in a community. So if a man is found lying with a woman who is married, we see that God commanded the death penalty for adultery. It was primarily because of the exceeding great social consequences of this sin. It would spread throughout that tribes of that nation. And so God commanded the ultimate penalty against it. Again, there's no question in God's standard. There's not going to happen. Adultery was not to be condemned with some double standard, if it was wrong for the woman, it was wrong for the man and vice versa. A man didn't get out of this deal. Now it's interesting, as a practical matter, when you think this through a little bit, this death penalty was rarely carried out. It was rarely carried out, as in the case in most of these situations when capital punishment is commanded, this is because of the capital crime required how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. Don't forget that. We've already studied that. For this kind of a moment, you had to have two or three reliable, good witnesses before you can have capital punishment for these two individuals and adultery. And so these witnesses had to come. They were the first ones that were going to cast the first stone because they were the witness. And they were so determined that, that uh, they witnessed and saw that, they were willing to pick up the stone and start doing it. If they weren't, then you knew they were not 100% sure if they caught them in adultery or not. That's why it was rare to see that. And we saw that execution or that discussion, discussion around the casting of the first stone back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse six and seven but when you take a look at adultery or other sexual sins there would rarely be two witnesses and so the capital punishment again wasn't just prominent all the time now this also helps us to understand what Jesus was doing when he was confronted and tested by some religious leaders if you remember and some men there who brought this woman in front of him and said, we've caught this woman in adultery. Remember in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. We caught this woman in adultery. And what did he do? He didn't say, oh my good oh, woman, what are you doing? This is terrible, you're going to die. No. 
He didn't say that. He just calmly said what? Why did you bring this woman in front of me? Where's the man? Where's the man that's supposed to be? Because a man and a woman was supposed to be equal here, and they were to both die. Why are you just bringing the woman? Okay, who's going to cast the first stone? Shall I, shall I remind you as I write in the, in the, in the dirt? Do I remind you of the, of the requirement, understanding of who you are? Is that what you want to do? And as one by one, what did they do? They all got out of there. Why? Because God was revealing clearly that he knew more than they ever thought he ever knew about them. That's what I believed. And he made sure they understood. He knew the law. Where's the man and the woman? What are you trying to do here? I'm not, there's no execution going to take place on this woman. Now, you shall put away the evil from Israel. See, again, the death penalty for adultery was carried, even though rarely, it still set an expectation in the society that says do not go over the bounds of what God has set. Now, in verses 23 through 29, we see a laws regarding rape. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city and the man, and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man will lie with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed woman, young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because of his he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. So we see a few different distinct, uh, situations here, scenarios. If a man had an intimate relationship with a virgin who was betrothed to, the hus to a husband and it happened in the city and no one immediately hears a woman cry out and attempt to stop this man, so it was a kind of consensual or allowing of that moment, then they both were to be executed. The woman was to be executed for disgracing her virginity, for one thing, but the man was to be executed because he humbled his neighbor's wife. It's interesting, they were betrothed, but still considered under the law, God's law, as being married, even though they had not commenced, they were just betrothed, waiting for the ceremony to take place down the road. But God sees them already committed to be married and to become one, and she was a virgin, and they broke both of those things, and there's consequences with that. Now, but if a man finds a betrothed woman who in the countryside, if a man had intimate relationships with a virgin who was betrothed, it happened in the countryside where no one could hear her cry out 
to save her, then only the man was to be executed because a woman was presumed to be a victim of rape and not blamed for that rape. And then if a man finds a woman who's a virgin and who is not betrothed, then that man who forces himself upon her has to pay money, 50 shekels to the father and the mother, and will be married to that young lady for the rest of his life and her life. And lastly, verse 30, a law concerning incest. A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. So here probably is describing a case of a son marrying his father's mother after the father had died and no longer in the picture. And he ends up uh, marrying the stepmother. And that was unacceptable because it was still considered part of her part of the family. And that uh, he is not only... Uh, even though not a blood relation, it was still a relationship, it was still incest, and it was considered uncovered his father's bed. He was now replacing him, and that was unacceptable in God's eyes here. And it's, it's significant because it's the same kind of immoral relationship that the Corinthian church, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when Paul had to rebuke them in that church because they were accepting and allowing something to fellowship within their body there at that, uh, that temple, a man has his uh, father's wife and he condemned and rebuked them of that and say, that cannot happen. You can't have those kinds of things going on. Why? Because again, they're bringing about things that are not natural, not good, not right in the eyes of God, regardless of how you feel, regardless of the culture, regardless of what's acceptable. We must be obedient. They must be obedient to God's commandments. And we must be obedient to God's word.